0: Men's Prayer Breakfast is going to be this Saturday morning at 7.30, and so plan on being there, and we'll continue our study. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting because I've been meeting with a couple of guys I have known since uh, junior high, and one of them's really solid, well, I think both of them are fairly solid believers, but the one of them has particularly educated himself well and has we we got into a discussion which he brought up, not knowing I was familiar with it at all, on that the book that we're looking at, the film series on how should we then live, and he has taught it several times. And he said, you know, the problem is that the video was made in the '70s, so it looks dated. But the but the and so he he told me that, of course, he's at one of the big Baptist churches here. He said the people were like, well, you know, it just seems so dated. The thing, and I told him, I said, the thing is, I recently reread a number of Francis Schaeffer's books, and there's relevant today that he could have written them yesterday. And the reason is, is he's on this side of 1963, 64. Once you cross that barrier, that's when American, uh, American culture became postmodern. And once you're on this side of 63, 64, if you're perceptive, you knew what was going on and you, you could explain it. And that's what he was doing. So it, it there's nothing in there that doesn't apply. Now, if you read people writing before then, it's, they're really writing in a civil, in a culture that is more of a modernist worldview, even though technically postmodernism began in Europe in 1900, but it really doesn't start impacting American culture until after World War Two. But if you're perceptive, you know what was what was going on. But you read stuff that was written a hundred years ago and it's it's not as as significant because it's on the other side of a great divide. And so anyway, the material, the content is as relevant as always, even though uh, it was written 50 years ago, 45 years ago. So men's prayer breakfast. And then also uh, Gary Phillips, who some of you uh, may know, uh, went to Baraka Church for many years and then to Pine Valley Bible Church. And he went to be with the Lord uh, this last weekend. And his service is fr- uh, Saturday afternoon at 1 p.m. at Pine Valley uh, Bible Church. Before we get started tonight, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord uh, in preparation for the study of the Word, that God the Holy Spirit would be able to use that in our lives productively and that He might open our eyes to the truth of the Word. So we'll bow our heads together and I will open in prayer after a few moments of silent prayer. Let's pray. Father we're thankful again that we can come together to study your word to reflect upon its meaning to be reminded of the truths that are here uh, the threads of truth that run throughout scripture the threads of prophecy and fulfillment that run throughout uh, your word father we're thankful for the fact that every word is breathed out by you and is therefore profitable for teaching for correction for instruction in righteousness Father, we're thankful for all that you have given us. And Father, as we study your word tonight, may we be able to focus on it. And may we be uh, encouraged and strengthened by the evidence of its truthfulness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're continuing our study in 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3. So you might want to open your Bibles there. We will be having something of a sword drill as we go through the various passages tonight, so you might want to be ready to uh, go from one passage to another. But we're going to start here and finish up where I was last week when we finished. But the focal point tonight will come probably in the second half where we're looking at reminders of fulfilled prophecy. And so this is very important to have these things where we can go to them, uh, making notes in your Bible so that you can follow the threads as we go through things. By that I mean it's a good idea that when we look at prophecy and then its fulfillment that you make notes in the side margin of your Bible uh, referencing uh, where the fulfillment is, where the prophecy was, and then connecting those things so that if you have your Bible handy and you need it, you can follow through uh, on where these prophecies are. So we've been in 2 Peter, three basic divisions, very simple. The first chapter is on God's that it's God's will for us to grow to spiritual maturity. That is necessary because of the dangers and the deception of false teachers, which is the topic in the second chapter. The first chapter focuses on growing to spiritual maturity, which is what's brought up at the very close of the epistle in 2 Peter 3.18, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The warning in the second chapter is all about uh, the problems of false teachers, their deception, and how they appeal to the lust patterns of the sin nature in order to entice and trap us uh, if we are not properly prepared by knowing the truth of God's word. And then in the third chapter, the focus is on God refuting some specific false teaching in light of the future return of Christ. Now, that's important statement there, because in this particular passage, that is going to be focusing our attention on um, on the future, on the prophecy. And so we're setting the stage here in uh Second Peter three, two for a fascinating study that is going to come up and is going to begin actually in verse four with a some detailed study to understand what is meant in uh, verse 5, related to the earth standing out of the water and in water. And then we get into the next section, which is talking about uh, judgment, the fire reserved for fire until the day of judgment and when that is. And then we're going to get into this uh, topic of the day of the Lord in verse 10 and the apparent destruction of the current universe. But what does that actually mean and what does that describe? And all of that is going to take us probably three months at least because we have to work through this. This is one of the most loaded passages I've looked at in a while and I have been studying and trying to solve several conundrums that I've put off for a number of years in from between verse 4 and verse 13 and I am not there yet so but I'm almost there and then it will take me time to prepare you for what's going to come because um you're probably not going to hear what you think you're going to hear. Okay, so this is the focus. We have to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the focal point of the third chapter, understanding that the universe is headed towards an end goal. This is what distinguishes Christianity from every other world religion and world philosophy because the various philosophical views on the nature of history uh, are not views unless they borrowed the conclusion from Christianity, which is what Marxism has done and what Islam has done and several other philosophies. Uh, it is the Bible that first set forth the fact that God has a plan for history. Therefore, history has meaning and purpose and history has a destination. And that destination deals with the resolution of the angelic revolt and the solution to the sin problem. And not only personal regeneration, but regeneration of the universe that has been corrupted by sin. And in order to do that, God has to bring judgment. He brought judgment on sin when Christ died on the cross for our sins. He paid the penalty for our sins, and during those three hours on the cross... God judged Christ Christ for our sins. Scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5, He who knew no sin was made sin for us. Christ judged Him in our place because He was the eternal Son of God. He could die and His death would pay the penalty for every human being. That was the only way to solve the sin problem. And so that sin penalty has been paid for. And then when it comes to solving the effects of sin on the universe, the corruption that came into the universe uh, because of Adam's sin, then there is going to be have to be a regeneration of the planet and the universe. And that's what we get into later on in chapter chapter three. So last time we were looking at verses one and two, where Peter writes, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which, that is the first epistle that he mentions that obviously there has to be a first one if this is the second one, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. And so this was what we focused on in the last lesson. The second verse that you might be that you may be mindful or that you might remember the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So the focus last time, just by way of reminder, was on the importance of being reminded, the importance of hearing things over and over again. That's how we learn, is through repetition, through studying things, through reading things. A lot of times when you uh, need to study a book, uh, this is something to train your children and grandchildren with, that if you're studying a book for a class, you, you don't just read it one time. You may need to read something three or four times to make sure you really grasp everything that's being said in preparation for for class. So we learn through repetition. And I went through a ver- variety of passages where I showed that this was something that is brought up numerous times by uh, the different writers of Scripture, uh, passages like 2 Timothy 1.5, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith, and 2 Peter 1.13, to stir you up by reminding you, 2 Peter 3.1, I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder and that this is important in the learning process. And then if you remember, I told you about a book by Gregory called The Seven Laws of Teaching. And the seventh law is the law of review and application. And I read part of that chapter to you where he said in every lesson about a third of it should be review of what you've done before. And so that's one thing I've heard all through the years of my ministry is an appreciation for for review, although I think some people get tired of it and I've heard of people listening to lessons and they start twenty or thirty minutes in because they don't want to go through the review. Uh in other words, I don't want to learn, make sure I've learned it or I don't want to hear it again, so I'm just going to skip ahead. Deuteronomy eight eighteen and nineteen are the Lord speaking to Israel and says you are excuse me, Moses speaking to Israel. And he says, and you shall remember the Lord, your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. God is the one who we may put forth a lot of effort. We may work hard, but it is God who enables us uh, to succeed. In Deuteronomy eight nineteen, he warns, if you if you by any means forget the Lord your God, and we've been studying that same word in Judges chapter three, that that doesn't mean just being absent-minded and saying, "Oops, I forgot God today." It is the willful denial of God being part of our life. It is a expresses a disdain for God and a willful ignoring of God and a willful setting aside of what we know that the Scripture says for us. So we, I summarized this. I got through about the first four points, and I'll uh, continue after we review those. Uh, reminders or repetition is designed to help us all learn. We need that over and over again. I wish I had written the source down years ago. I read that that geniuses need to hear something seven or eight times before it gets locked in. The rest of us need to hear it 27 or 28 times before it gets locked in. So this is why we need to hear things over and over again. Second is that teaching should not be toward the goal of simply remembering, but toward the goal that we cannot forget it. Now, what I mean by that is the average way in which preachers are taught to communicate is that each lesson is a standalone lesson that does not refer to anything before or anything to come. It, it, It can be taken completely on its own without reference to anything else. And therefore, you don't have repetition. You don't have review. You don't have these things that are necessary to learn. And so they simplify them down, three points in a poem, and they create, uh, and they are very creative in the way they structure things so that they uh, use various uh, acrostics or other uh, ways of structuring their points so that maybe... On a good day, people will remember two of the three points by Sunday night, one of the three points by Monday morning, and some vague idea of what they heard Sunday morning on Tuesday morning. And that's what is typical. I mean, I remember being taught that. However, if the pastor I grew up under said that the goal is to teach it over and over and over again so you can't forget it. Just think about. The things that you, you learned, the skills you developed when you were young, if you were playing piano lessons, how many times you had to play a piece over and over and over and over again so you would get that into muscle memory. Or if you were playing sports, how many times you had to shoot hoops, how many times you had to get on that free throw line and shoot for that basket over and over and over again To in that repetition to build it into muscle memory. Or if you've been in dance or if you've been in just about any discipline, you just have to drill yourself over and over and over again so that it comes automatically without a lot of conscious thought. That's what we need to do in teaching. That's what I aim to do is just to say things, to show things over and over again so that you remember it, you can't forget it. It's there. Third, through repetition, we develop the ability to retain the information and then later recall it for application and for use. I illustrated this as I closed last time by saying going to Lamentations 3.20 and following, where uh, Jeremiah is looking out at the smoking ruins of Jerusalem, destroyed by the army of Nebuchadnezzar, the temple in ruins, the walls down, everything destroyed, dead bodies everywhere. And as he focuses on what is lost, he despairs. He is depressed. He is discouraged. He is sad. And so he says, my soul still remembers. And hear what it is. He's remembering what it was like and what had been lost. And he says, and sinks within me. He's saddened. He's sorrowful. He is depressed. Even though God had given him the message Uh, for 20 or 30 years before this, to preach and proclaim and to warn the people that because they had turned away from God, that this is exactly what God was going to do. This was how God was going to judge them. And he knew what was coming more than anyone else. And yet when it happens, he is uh, despondent. And then he says, This I recall to mind, and therefore I have hope. Now, what he is recalling to mind is what we have in verses 22 to 26. He's recalling who God is. He recalls that God is still on his throne. God is still in control. God is the one who has overseen even the uh, horrors of the judgment on Jerusalem because they had rebelled against him so much. And so that's what he's recalling to mind. In in other words, when he gets his focus off of his negative circumstances and on to the God who is greater than any of our circumstances, when he remembers what the Word of God says and the truth of the Word of God is more real to him than the stench of the smoking ruins in his nostril or looking upon the horrors before him, He is able to have real joy and stability because God's word and God's essence are more real to him than what he is seeing and experiencing at that time. He says through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. God may have brought discipline or judgment into the life of Israel. It may have led to the captivity and the deportation of hundreds of thousands of prisoners and the death of of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of others. But he says... For those of us who are alive, that's the we, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. We're still alive. God still has a plan for us. So if you go through some horrible situations in your life, whether it is due to God's discipline or judgment on your life because of your bad decisions, your rebelliousness towards him, or because you're connected to someone or some business or some group or some nation that has violated God's commands, uh, we can be sure that God's mercies are still in effect. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. God is still a God of grace. Even when God is a God of judgment, God is still a God of grace, and he is still a God of love, and he is still a God who provides. He says regarding God's uh, mercies or his compassion, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, that no matter what is happening, God is still faithful. He is faithful to his word. He is faithful to his people. He is faithful to each and every believer. And it is only when we get our eyes on ourselves and become self-absorbed or we get our eyes on uh, negative circumstances that we begin to to blame God. But the reality is that uh, when we dig a when we dig a pit and we dig a hole, then it is uh, God, then we blame God for falling into the hole. And God is always the one we blame for whatever our problems are. But the reality is we've dug the hole and now uh, we're in it. We're in the pit. In verse 24, Jeremiah says, "...the Lord is my portion." Says my soul. Therefore, I hope in Him, and here He is in the midst of these ruins. Not only is He seeing the horrible sights in front of Him, uh, dead bodies, the burn burning ruins of Jerusalem, but where is He going to get food? Where is He going to get water? Where is He going to get all the things that sustain life? But He says, "I hope in Him. I have confidence." and an optimistic confidence in the certainty of God's plan and future for us. And that's the same way for us. No matter what happens, we lose a job, we get sick, we have some sort of permanent disability, we have any number of bad things that we perceive or bad things that happen to us, uh, we can say God's mercies are new every morning, therefore I have hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly. Waiting for us sometimes uh, seems as if we've been waiting for many, many years, but God is, is, uh, God is on His own timetable. And his timetable is different. For us, it's like a thousand years. For him, it's but a moment. Sort of reminds me of a rabbi joke that Arnold Fruchtenbaum used to used to tell. And he probably still tells it. That Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai and he says, God, I have a couple of questions for you. He says, um, He says, How long is a thousand years? And God says, says, Well, it's a minute. And he says, well, how, how much is how much is um, a, 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 a dollar for you? And God says, well, it's, right. he says, how much is a million dollars to you? And God says, well, it's like a dollar. And so um, Moses says, well, in that case, give me a dollar. God said, wait a minute. We, uh, that verse that we will study that's quoted from Psalm 90 that we um, have in Second Peter 3 later on is that uh, a day at the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And so we wait on the Lord because He has His timetable and He knows what's best. We want everything right now, and He waits until we are ready for it. So we have to trust in Him. We have to hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. This isn't talking about personal eternal salvation. This is talking about God's deliverance of us uh, from our circumstance. And whenever we're going through suffering, He either saves us from it where we don't. He takes it away or He delivers us through it or He takes us home. One of those three options. Now we're getting into some new uh, material. Number four, just as repetition of physical actions gets into muscle memory. So repetition of scripture or diagrams or phrases in teaching or the repeated teaching of concepts develop memories in the soul, which are drawn on for application And as I've said many times, I repeat several verses before different Bible classes and I say them over and over again so that people can uh, lip sync with me as I say them, because then when they get in a bind... Uh, they're going to remember those verses. I learned a long time ago that as much as I talk about the importance of memorizing Scripture for people, that most people don't. It takes time. We all have very, very busy lives. It's not like 100 or 200 or 300 years ago when life moved at a much slower pace and we didn't have all the distractions of entertainment and other things. And so at, at, I'm just trying to help you memorize Scripture. Uh, point number five, we, repetition is necessary to learn and to master any skill. We have to do it over and over and over again. And that applies to the ten spiritual skills. Now these ten spiritual skills I haven't taught through in a while, but, uh, you have known most of them for a while. Uh, the first is confession of sin. It is not the end game. It is the starting point because uh, you might use the illustration of being in a house. Being in the house is a picture of abiding in Christ, of walking with the Lord, being in fellowship with him. But when we sin, we get kicked out the back door. And when we confess sin, then we're able to get back in the house. But the point isn't just coming back in the door. The point is staying inside. That's abiding in Christ, remaining in in fellowship with Him. And so we have to learn that skill of keeping short accounts to God, confessing sin, admitting and acknowledging to Him in silent prayer what we have done, and instantly He forgives us and cleanses us. And that then gets us in a position where we can walk by the Spirit. A phrase that is... Uh, synonymous with abiding in Christ, walking in the light, walking in the truth. All of these are terms that describe our spiritual life. We have to be in that house, as it were, in fellowship with God in order to advance and grow spiritually. Then we have to learn to trust God. And that is what I call the faith rest drill. It is faith in that the active part is we have to trust God And the passive part is we have to rest in his provision. We mix our faith with the promises of God, and then we are able to relax, just as uh, Jeremiah did in Lamentations chapter 3. And then we have to learn to orient our lives to the Bible. We have to learn that the Bible is absolute truth. And the Bible is always true. And when the Bible becomes more real to us than our experience, that's when we're really on the way to spiritual growth. Because we are trusting God above our experience, above our feelings, above the opinions of our parents, of our friends, of co-workers. We have to put the Word of God first. And then we have to understand uh, God's grace We have to orient our lives to grace, which means not only are we taking advantage of God's grace toward us, but we are extending grace to other people. We learn to be gracious and kind and generous to other people, uh, even when they are not gracious or kind or generous toward us. Then, as we mature, we begin to learn and operate more on the basis of where we're headed spiritually. We learn of our spiritual destiny in heaven, and that after the conclusion of the church age, there will be an event called the Judgment Seat of Christ, an evaluation of every believer, not to determine if we're going to get into heaven, but what our roles and responsibilities are going to be uh, after... We are in heaven. And so that is our personal sense of our eternal destiny. Uh, In the regular, in our regular physical, emotional life, we often do things and uh, just for the immediate gratification. But one of the evidences of maturity, emotional maturity, is that we're able to postpone gratification. And we're able to say, well, others can do that, but I can't. Uh, that's when we are thinking in long term in terms of the uh, lasting consequences of certain kinds of behavior or certain actions. The same thing happens spiritually. We begin to understand what our spiritual destiny is as members of the body of Christ, members of the church, and then we live in light of that destiny, and it changes the decisions we make. It changes our priorities and focuses us on preparing for our eternal roles and responsibilities, and not just living in light of tomorrow or the next day. That, in turn, uh, as we get past that stage of maturity, we begin to love God. Not that we didn't love Him before, just as a three-year-old loves mommy and daddy, but not like an 8- or 9-year-old. And an 8- or 9-year-old doesn't love their parents like a 15- or 16-year-old does or a 30- or 40-year-old. And as we mature, we learn more and more about what it means to uh, love our parents and to respect them. And so we develop a personal love for God, and that helps to drive us and motivate us. And as we uh, become oriented to God's love for us, then that in turn is displayed toward others. And we uh, love others in an unconditional manner. Now, that doesn't mean that we just let them get away with everything. That is a misunderstanding. Unconditional love means I'm still going to love you. But that may mean that you have to suffer certain consequences if you uh, treat me in a certain way. Uh, God does the same thing. He loves us. But if we are rebellious and continue to be rebellious, then God is going to discipline us. That's why God uh, tells us in Proverbs that if we do not properly discipline our children, we don't really love them. Then this leads uh, to an occupation with Christ. Our focus is on Christ, who is the author and finisher of our faith. We focus upon Him, and then as we master all of those, we develop a capacity for joy and happiness that gives us stability and tranquility. It's not emotional, it is a mental attitude. And so all of those ten spiritual skills... Then are ours, but we have to practice them and we have to apply scripture and claim promises and confess sin over and over and over again until it just becomes second nature to us. And it'll take all of our lives uh, in order to uh, make some advance because we're constantly struggling against our sin nature. Second Peter one twelve Peter said, I intend to remind you constantly he was going to remind them over and over and over again till they were sick of hearing it and then he would remind them even more. That is how we learn. In John 14:26 Jesus told his disciples that the helper that is the paraclete or the comforter the holy spirit whom the father will send in my name he will teach you that is you 11 disciples. All things and bring to remembrance all the things I spoke to you. That's not a promise for us. It was a promise for them. 2 Timothy 2.14, Paul says to Timothy, Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, uh, to the ruin of the hearers. Titus three one, Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities. Why do we have to be reminded? Because we constantly uh, want to do it our way instead of the way that our uh, the authority over us wants to do it, whether it's parents, whether it is a husband, a father, an employer, or a coach, or a teacher, or the government. Jude 5 says, I want to remind you, though you once knew this. So this is a principle that goes through the Scripture over and over again, that we have to be constantly reminded about all these things, that is, all that is in uh, Scripture. So in 2 Peter 1.13, Peter says, I want to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me, Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder. Again and again, he keeps talking about reminding us. What's the purpose? Second Peter three, two. this gets us into the next verse. That, this expresses his purpose in reminding us. That you may be mindful of the words, or that you may remember the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. This is extremely complicated Greek grammar here, the way it's all jumbled together with lots of different uh, uh, genitive phrases, and it's difficult to put it together, but that's the best sense of it right there. We are to be reminded that you may be mindful, that you may remember, that you in order to remind you. That is his point of what? Of words that were spoken beforehand. This is the uh, word prolego, which means to say something ahead of time, to foretell or to predict. And so he's reminding them that they need to remember the words of the prophets Now, this refers not to New Testament prophets. It refers to the Old Testament prophets. And we see various places where you have this kind of of, of a statement, Uh, except in reverse. In Ephesians 2.20, we're told that the foundation of the church are the apostles and prophets. Notice the order. When apostles comes first and then prophets, it's talking about church-age apostles and church-age prophets. When it's got the order as prophets and apostles, then we're talking chronologically prophets in the Old Testament, apostles in the New Testament. And so he wants them to be reminded of the things that were said through prophecy by the prophets of the Old uh, Testament. So this is a lot. uh, Peter did this a lot in his own preaching in Acts chapter three, verse 18, where he cites several Old Testament prophecies in that sermon that he gave in Acts three. He said, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Now he was speaking to a Jewish audience. He was in the temple precincts at the time. And he is giving this, this message, uh, explaining who Jesus was, that he was the promised and prophesied Messiah of the Old Testament. That he fulfilled all of these different prophecies that were given in the Old Testament. Uh, about the Messiah except for those that would be applied at, that would not be fulfilled until the second coming. And I'll talk about that in just a minute. And so he recognizes that the Old Testament was filled with prophecies about the Messiah. Now this is the kind of, same kind of thing that has been recognized even by Jewish Uh, philosophers and theologians down through the centuries. In the Talmud, in uh, Baba Sanhedrin 99a, we read, None of the prophets prophesied except of the days of the Messiah. Isn't that a fascinating statement? Now remember, the Talmud wasn't written until about the 4th or 5th century. The way it goes is you had... Oral tradition that was passed down from generation to generation among the rabbis. Now, some people today think, well, somebody probably forgot some stuff, and things would get convoluted in oral, passing on oral tradition. But what we know about civilizations that passed on oral tradition is that this is the only way they remember their history, and so each generation makes sure that the next generation repeats everything perfectly. Without forgetting or dropping anything. And so, uh, even in the Bible, we discovered that, uh, when we have, uh, had a discovery in 1948 of what's known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, that those scrolls that were discovered, uh, down by the Dead Sea, about, uh, 14 miles east of Jerusalem, that those, those scrolls dated to about, uh, 200 uh, to, uh, 200 BC up until about maybe, uh, the time of Christ. And there are many of the scrolls that were found there dated back 150, uh, 200 years before Christ. Now, when we have our, our Bibles and we study the Old Testament, the Hebrew text that was used up until, uh, 1948 and is still used uh, Is still the, the best text um, was based on manuscripts that were uh, written uh, around eight hundred, nine hundred, a thousand A.D. Now, how many years are there between two hundred B.C. and eight hundred A.D.? That's a thousand years, and we don't have any. We didn't have any manuscripts in between. And so, all of a sudden, we discovered these, and liberals and those who were skeptics and doubted the truth of the Bible said, oh, now we're going to find out how many things changed and how many things were uh, added and how many things were lost. And what they discovered was that nothing, that, for example, the only, I think the only complete scroll was the scroll of Isaiah, and there were around 50 or 60 uh, differences most of which were updated spelling, uh, word transposition, where instead of a, a word order like the Lord God, it would be, uh, the uh, God our Lord or something like that. It was just a transposition of, of terms. In other places, it would be a shifting of phrases. So most of the differences were minor and had absolutely nothing to do with the meaning of the text but there were a few that seemed to be a little more significant and one of the uh, scholars of the dead sea scrolls back in back in the 50s a man by the name of miller burrows who was the head of Sem- the semitic language department at yale uh, was in charge of of uh, a lot of the transcribing of the dead sea scrolls and translating and he said there's about maybe 14 significant differences between the Qumran Isaiah scroll and, um, and, and the Masoretic text. And maybe eight or nine of those ought to be accepted. But 10 years later, after a lot more reflection and study, he said the Masoretic text is the superior text. And that we should not adopt those those uh differences, that those were due to various other other reasons. So um, we fa- we go from uh the time of Christ where we have this oral transmission, it's written down around uh two hundred AD by Judah Hanasi, who is the one who edits and pulls together all the oral tradition into what is known as the Mishnah then the Mishnah became the standard, not the, not the Tanakh, not the Old Testament, but it is the rabbinical commentary on the Old Testament, known as the Mishnah. And then they began to write commentaries on the Mishnah. So that became the Talmud. If you see a page of the Talmud, uh, the centerpiece is a rectangle, and that's the Mishnah. And then there's a blank border around them, a margin around them. And then there's another area of text, and that's the Talmud. That's the commentary on the Mishnah. So this is from the uh, Talmud, and the rabbis, four or five hundred years even after Jesus said that, thinking about the Old Testament, that none of the prophets prophesied except of the days of the Messiah. It's a profound statement. Everything in the Old Testament ultimately is about the Messiah. Then around uh, 1100 A.D., A.D. 1100 rather, um, Moses Maimonides, who was one of the greatest philosopher, theologians uh, in the the Middle Ages for the Jews, uh, said This belief in the Messiah is in accordance with the prophecies concerning him by all the prophets from our master Moses until Malachi. Peace be unto them. And so he, again, is reiterating. Now, they haven't accepted Jesus as the Messiah, but they recognize that the Old Testament prophecies are all about the Messiah and that the Old Testament is all about the Messiah. Alfred Adersheim, a German Jew who converted to Christianity, realized that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament and trusted in him, wrote a massive work called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah in the second half of the 19th century. And in that he says, The passages in the Old Testament applied to the Messiah or to Messianic times in the most ancient Jewish writings amount in all to 456. That is, there are 456 prophecies in the Old Testament that relate either to the Messiah or to Messianic times. He says they are distributed. There are 75 in the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. 243 from the prophets. That's the Nevi'im. The first five books are called the Torah. That's where you get the T in Tanakh. It's an acronym. The N is for Nevi'im, which is the Hebrew word for prophets. And then he says 138 come from the Hagiographer. That is the word for the writings, the Ketuvim, the third section of the jewish division of the old testament and so you have t for torah n for neviim and k for ketuvim and you put them together you have the acronym tanakh that's what the uh, how the jewish old testament is is uh, is, is named so he says uh, 75 from the Pentateuch, 243 from the Prophets, 138 from the Hagiographa, and supported by more than 558 separate quotations from the rabbinical writings. All of that relates to the, the, the Messiah, and the rabbinical writings recognize that those passages relate to the Messiah. So let's go through and just remind ourselves of some of the prophecies. What we should have as sort of a a thumbnail is about 10 or 12 uh, key examples from the Old Testament prophecies to the New Testament fulfillment. And what I want to look at tonight, we won't get through all 10 tonight, but we'll make a stab at it, We'll look at fulfill prophecies. Now, there's over, well over a hundred prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in Jesus. That's an incredible number. Uh, those who are, uh, who excel in deci- determining probabilities have determined that if s- someone were to accurately predict just ten things and have them come true, Uh, several hundred years later in one person, that the odds of that happening would be equivalent to the odds of the state of Texas being covered about four feet deep in silver dollars, if you remember what a silver dollar looked like. And then one of those having a red X painted on it with uh, red uh, fingernail polish And then stirring that into the pot. Now think about that. Texas is big. That's all the way from Dalhart and Dumas up in the Panhandle all the way down to Brownsville and Harlingen down in the valley. It's all the way from um, Orange in the east to El Paso in the west, from Shreveport up in the northeast down to Laredo in the southwest. And you have valleys and canyons and mountains and ...rivers and all kinds of geographical features... ...and you pile up silver dollars covering all of that... ...up to four feet deep. Now just imagine if you filled this room up to the ceiling... ...how many silver dollars that would be. What would be the chances that you would blindfolded... ...reach in and pull out the one that is marked? But this is covering the whole state of Texas. That's an impossibility that just ten of these would come to pass... In one person, and we're talking about over 110. Well, wait a minute! Didn't you just say that there were over 400 and something? That's what Adersheim said. That's because there's there's prophecies that weren't fulfilled. Because Jesus' message to accept him as the king and to accept his kingdom was rejected and he was crucified. He did not fulfill those other prophecies which relate to the establishment of the kingdom of Israel with a with him as a descendant of King David on the throne in Jerusalem. And so those will be fulfilled. So what I want to do is talk about fulfill prophecies. And then we'll talk about some unfulfilled prophecies in order to set ourselves up for one of the great unfulfilled prophecies, which is the prophecies about the day of the Lord, which we'll get to when we get down to verse 10. But all of this is just setting the stage for what we're going to have to do in terms of studying the unfulfilled prophecies that are going to be mentioned uh, coming up. So I want to start with Luke 4. Luke 4. 16 to 20, in conjunction with Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. So it it might help you to turn to these passages, because I'm going to turn there, and then we're going to talk a little bit about context. The context here is that Jesus is back in his hometown of Nazareth, which wasn't very large. Everybody knew him. Everybody knew little Yeshua, who had grown up there uh, with uh, with them and in this chapter he comes to Nazareth and it is the Shabbat and he is going to go to synagogue. Now the way it works in a synagogue is every uh, Shabbat there is a reading they've, in, in, the, in modern Judaism they've divided up the Pentateuch into readings into uh, different readings, parasha And so the reading, but but then they read through the whole Old Testament. And the reading for that particular Sunday, just by chance, right, was from Isaiah 61. Now, God the Father planned all this from eternity past. And, And so Jesus is there on a very particular day knowing exactly what the reading is. And he is going to be the one who reads it. And he will stop halfway through and he makes a point. So we're told in verse 17, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. So I've put the next two verses in italics because that's the quote from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. To preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, To proclaim liberty to the captives. And recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book. And he gave it back to the attendant. He sat down. The eyes of all in that synagogue are fixed on him. Everybody's looking at him because he was supposed to have finished it, but he stopped at that particular point. And so now that he really has their attention, he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, if we go to Isaiah 61, what we discover is that he stops in the middle of a verse, that Jesus is fully conscious of the fact that this passage is talking about him. And that's why he is talking to them. He wants them to know that he is claiming to be the Messiah. He knows that he is the promised one and that he is identifying himself as the Messiah. So Isaiah sixty-one one through the first part of Isaiah 61, 2, is what he quoted. When he finished, he stopped at the end of the line to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And what he is saying is, this is fulfilled now in your presence, but he stopped. What comes next is a reference to a future event, one that has not been fulfilled yet. It is a time that Jeremiah describes as the time of Jacob's trouble, a time of God's wrath upon the earth, what we refer to as the future great tribulation, what we refer to as Daniel's 70th week is prophesied in Daniel chapter 9. And so what Jesus doesn't read is the part that isn't fulfilled yet. He says, And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, that is in Israel, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. That isn't fulfilled until Jesus returns at the second coming. So what this passage does is it not only... Communicates to us that Jesus knew who he was as the Messiah, and that he is making a very clear statement to uh, the people that he grew up with that he was the Messiah. But when he stops in verse 2, he's making it clear to us that the first coming only accomplished that much. That because he was crucified, that the kingdom was postponed and the rest of it will not be fulfilled until until we get to the second coming. So what we see here is that there is a break between the first line of of verse 2 and uh, the second half of verse 2 and verse 3. That's fulfilled in the future. We have various prophecies. To go to, we have the prophecy of the seed of the woman after Adam sinned and Adam and Eve are now spiritually dead. Then God came to fellowship with them, but they were hiding from God. And so God asked them, well, what happened? Where are you hiding? And of course, God knew where they were hiding and what the problem was. But he's asking the question so that they become self-conscious of the problem. And afterward, he announces the consequences of this sin other than spiritual death. And he says to the serpent in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed, that is the seed of the serpent and her seed, the descendants of the woman. But note, but it's interesting here because women have an egg. They do not have a, a, a seed. They have an ovum. They don't have the sperm. But this is called the seed of the woman. It's a hint. You wouldn't get it all from this, but in light of later prophecy, we know it is a foreshadowing of the virgin birth. You, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head. That's a fatal wound for the serpent. And you shall bruise him on the heel, which if a viper bites you on the heel or on the finger, you're just as dead. But guess what? Christ didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. The fulfillment is, men- is mentioned in Galatians four four. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. So this is the second prophecy fulfillment. Third is that He would be born of a virgin. This is in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The uh, sign is, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign speaking to uh, Ahab, who was the um, Ahaz, excuse me, not Ahab, but Ahaz, who was the king of Judah and in the line of David. And so what uh Isaiah's is doing is speaking to him personally. the yous previously were to you all, speaking of the house of David, and now there is a, a sign for you. if you do not believe uh, or excuse me that was in verse nine if uh, I'm skipping uh, backwards um, uh, this is a, this is the plural here that g- he's giving a sign to the house of da- of David, give you all a sign that the house of David will continue. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, there's been debate by those who do not believe in the virgin birth that the word here does not mean virgin. There are only three words available in Hebrew that could be used. The first word is a word naag, which has to do with a young woman. It could refer to a virgin, as it does in 1 Kings 1-2, or it could refer to a non-virgin, as it does in Ruth 2-6. So it's not a precise term for a virgin. The second key word that is used is the word betula, which usually has the idea of a virgin, but a virgin of any age. It could be an older woman, or it could be a young woman. In Joel eight, it's used of a young uh, a widow who had been married but lost her uh, husband. So in that case, uh, she was not a virgin. Uh, the word uh, Betula, therefore, is not clearly a virgin, even though in many cases it does have that sense. But then the word that is used here is the word Alma, and it always refers to a very young woman. One who is of marriageable age but has not yet been married. And unlike our culture, at their culture, if you were a young woman and not married, you did not have any relations with a man. And so this is a word that does have that idea. And when the rabbis, 200 years before Christ, translated Isaiah in, from Hebrew into Greek, they chose the word parthenos, which means virgin in order to translate this particular term because they understood that it was both a messianic prophecy but also that it described a miraculous birth because it described a woman who was not married and had not had relations uh, with with a man. And further it said that she would call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel which means God is with us. And that prophecy is fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1, that Mary was betrothed to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found with child. She was pregnant. And Joseph still took her to his wife because the angel Gabriel announced to him that this was God's plan and what God was doing. And even after they married he did not know her that it is, he did not have relations with her until she had brought forth her firstborn son and called his name uh, Jesus. He's called the Son of God. Psalm two seven, God says, the Father says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me actually this is the second person of the Trinity the Messiah, the anointed one speaking. Uh, quoting God the Father, so I will declare the decree. This is the Son saying, "I'm declaring this." The Lord, that is God the Father, said to me, "You are my Son. Today I have begotten you." In passages such as First uh, Chronicles seventeen eleven to fourteen and Second Samuel seven twelve to sixteen, that's the Davidic covenant, saying that there would be a son of David and this is the fulfillment in Matthew 3:17 that when Jesus was being baptized by John the Baptist a voice from heaven God the Father said this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased and we'll stop with number 5 which is the prophecy from Genesis 49:10 the scepter that is the sign of a ruler or a king the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until he whose right it is comes. Now, you probably memorize this in the King James where they translated until Shiloh comes. But there's a, a problem with the translation of that. And actually, when you look at the uh, correct, ma- better manuscripts, that word. Which is similar to Shiloh, but that's that 's a uh, just a transliteration. It really relates to a passage in the prophets that means the one whose right it is that is the right to rule, so the scepter will stay with Judah until the one that is the Messiah comes, whose right it is to rule, and that is fulfilled in Jesus as he is. Uh, Luke 3.23 in Luke's genealogy says Jesus himself being the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Perez. I left a lot out because it goes on through 10 verses. The son of Perez, the son of Judah. So Jesus could trace his genealogy all the way back to Judah and even further back to Abraham and even further back to Shem. So we'll come back next time. And look at the last five and then ten unfulfilled prophecies. Father, we thank you that we have the certainty of our faith that there is historical verification of the prophecies in Scripture, that they were not general prophecies. They had tremendous specificity and that Jesus fulfilled over a hundred of them the first time he came. And when he comes again, he will fulfill all of the remainder. That these are not yet fulfilled because he was rejected as king when he came the first time. Father, we pray that as we study these things, it will give us great confidence in the truth of your word and the truth of the gospel. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.